0: Hey there, Alex. My name is Andrew. I am a long-time startup listener. Hi,
1: Alex. My name is Shauna Sweeney. Uh, Forgive me if I'm a little out of breath. I just finished jogging.
2: Hey, Alex. It's 1.20 in the morning. I just finished listening to some old startups, and I thought I'd uh, give you a call.
3: Hello, and welcome to Startup. I'm Alex Bloomberg, sitting in as I do from time to time for regular host Lisa Chow, because today we're trying something new.
1: I wanted to know whether some of your worst fears were uh, realized, and if they were, you know, what did you learn from them?
3: I'm wondering if you could go back to day
0: one before Gimlet even had a name and redo one thing, what would you do differently?
1: My question is, what's the breakdown of time that you feel motivated versus the time that you feel overwhelmed?
3: A while ago, we sent out a call to listeners. What questions do you have about Gimlet? Podcast Network, making this podcast a startup, and many of you responded. Now, quick background for people who may not have been listening to this podcast startup since the beginning and are wondering who the hell I am. This show started out documenting the formation of Gimlet Media, and I hosted it. It was a podcast about someone starting a podcast company, which, as we said many times back then, was meta, we know. Anyway, since that time, this podcast has expanded its topics beyond simply the parent company. But I come back from time to time with regular updates on Gimlet's continued evolution. The drama does not stop once you raise that first round, people, let me tell you. And we decided to do this update in a new way. We decided to go right to you, our listeners, and ask you what you are most curious about. Today, I will be answering your questions on the show. It's sort of a podcast version of an AMA, Ask Me Anything. And it gets into a lot of stuff, growth, diversity, and this ABC sitcom that is currently being made about me and Gimlet, based on the first season of Startup. That's all coming up, and just a quick heads up, there's one mildly bad word in this episode. All right, let's start here.
0: Uh, Hey there, Alex, Uh, my name is Tony, I live in Los Angeles. I had a question because I work in the industry and I've noticed that Gimlet has uh, used some of its shows as uh, IP to get other things started.
3: So Tony is calling with a question that came up a lot, although Tony is using some entertainment industry terminology. He's asking about how we've used our IP, intellectual property, to get things started, as he says. And one of the things he's referring to is this.
0: Why should I invest in your podcast company? It's the Cadillac of podcast companies. The, Alex, listen.
3: Who are you and what are you doing? Go. This is a trailer for an ABC sitcom that is coming out this winter called Alex, Inc., which is based on season one of Startup, and it stars Zach Braff as me. Many of you might have seen that trailer bouncing around, but Tony, because he works in the entertainment industry, noticed some other Gimlet-related developments reported in the trades. Our first fiction series, which we launched last fall, Homecoming, was optioned to be a TV show. A couple stories that aired on Gimlet Podcasts were also optioned to be movies. All this optioning activity, that is what Tony's question is about.
0: Uh, I was curious if that was uh, something that was part of the original business plan. Is that something that sort of occurred to you at some point? Did it just fall in your lap when a producer called? uh, Curious
2: about that and how that's playing out and what your involvement is in all of those projects.
3: So were all these film and TV projects part of our original plan? That's Tony's first question. And second, what's our involvement in all of them? Well, to help us answer those questions is the person here at Gimlet who knows most about these deals, who's led the way in setting all of them up, Chris Giliberti, one of the first people we hired at Gimlet.
0: I was number 13, but I sometimes tell people 12 because the whole thing about like, if there's a building with like- <laughs> Because you're, you know, you're superstitious. More than, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so, you're, so I'm actually numbered. <laughs> and know you don't want to like downgrade yourself to 14. So I'm 12. You're tied for 12. No, I'm not tied.
3: Okay, okay, you've just erased whoever (laughs) 12 was. Chris and I spent some time in the studio talking about how this whole Hollywood thing started in the first place. And it started with an email we received from a producer in Hollywood named John Davis. And he was inquiring about optioning the rights to season one of Startup. Now, optioning for those not familiar with the way the entertainment industry works, it's a very standard thing that studios and networks do. They'll option books, magazine articles, radio stories, and yes, podcasts. And what it means is they pay a little bit of money for the exclusive right to take your book or article or podcast and turn it into a TV show or a movie. Options usually last a year or two. And if whoever acquired the option decides they want to go forward and make a pilot, they have to pay you more. And if they actually go and take it to series, they pay you even more. And if somebody wants to option one of your works and you negotiate a lot in the beginning, you can set yourself up for making a lot of money if the thing ever actually gets made. But when John Davis, this producer, reached out to us, Matt and I told Chris, do the opposite of that. Don't negotiate.
0: Yeah, I remember you and Matt telling me, like, don't spend any time on this. Yes. Just, you know, like, whatever, if you, you know, want to take a call every now and then or answer the email, that's fine. But just don't, don't let it be a time sink.
3: Right. This turned out to be bad advice, for reasons I'll get to in a moment. But I had my reasons for giving it to Chris. It all goes back to what I did before Gimlet. For over a decade, I was a producer and a journalist at This American Life. And during that time... I was regularly approached by people from Hollywood saying they wanted to turn some story I'd worked on into a TV show or a movie. We'd end up having a bunch of meetings that ultimately went nowhere. So I told Chris, learn from my experience. Do not get sucked into the Hollywood meeting vortex. Take whatever money they're offering up front. Don't spend any time negotiating extra money for pilots and series that will never, ever get made. And Chris took my advice. But then a series of increasingly unlikely things happened. First, John Davis, that producer, actually got a big star on board, Zach Braff, who said, yeah, if you make this, I will act in it and direct it. So then, with Zach Braff on board, they approached the big networks and got ABC to order what's called a pilot script. ABC basically paid them and said, you write a script, and then we'll decide if we want to shoot it or not. Then they wrote the script, and ABC said, yes, we do want to shoot it. We want to turn it into an actual pilot. And then, perhaps most unlikely of all, when ABC saw the pilot that they made, they said, yeah. We want to pick it up and put it on the air. And that happens very rarely. So all of this could have been a huge windfall for Gimlet. If only our initial advice to Chris Giliberti hadn't been so totally wrong.
0: It, it's very small money. Um, the, This first deal was. Yeah the, yeah the
3: Alex Inc., the thing that became Alex Inc. was just single-digit thousands of dollars. For, like for, for the, the option. option.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, tens of thousands for, you know, the subsequent purchase price and series sale bonus and Mm -hmm. um you know in total gimlet will make a six-figure amount on all of this but considering that we are the point of origination for an entire broadcast (laughs) uh, tv (laughs) franchise i think we're it's called alex inc (laughs) that's called alex inc i feel like we're probably under under undercompensated, but but not in not in some way where anybody ripped us off or anything. No, no. It's just...
3: To me, the directive was like, if it becomes Seinfeld, it would be great if we had some sort of like participation in, in that. Yes. And short of that, I don't, I don't want to like have to think about it very much. And not only are we not making much money, we also don't have a lot of influence over the show that's being made about us. We're not involved in writing it or shaping it in any way, which is totally fine, right? Like that was my explicit instructions to Chris. Don't spend any time thinking about this. But now that it's happening, it's changed our thinking.
0: I think, you know, after the startup deal, I think we felt okay. we've learned a bunch. Um, It'd be great to pursue an arrangement where we could have
3: a bit more input. So Chris, working largely on his own, went out and tried to make more deals. He didn't wait for things to come in through the inbox, but rather took ideas to Hollywood himself to see if people were interested. And it turns out they were. To date, he has sold three more projects, two movies, and a TV show. And Gimlet is much more creatively involved in all of these deals. And the money's a lot better, too. If one of them actually gets made, we could be making seven figures, not six. Chris has acquired a nickname, H.C., for Hollywood Chris. And part of the reason for Chris's success is that the television landscape has completely transformed since my This American Life days. In addition to the networks and the cable channels, you've also got Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and YouTube, and all of them are looking for source material to make their own prestige series. They're all looking for something that could become their own house of cards. How big do you think this line of business could be? In my mind, it's massive.
0: Like in my mind, it's the thing that could turn Gimlet into a unicorn mm-hmm. and beyond. Because it's you look at, I mean, there are many, many, many examples of multi-billion-dollar film and TV production companies and studios. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there aren't any of of audio companies, right? <laughs> and so I think you know there are precedents for this. Like you look at um, Marvel, which mm-hmm. was just a comic book company, and it, you know, it's the same sort of model of originating characters and worlds and stories in a low-cost experimental format, Mm -hmm. and then transitioning it to a higher investment, higher return format.
3: In other words, transitioning this character, me, in this world, the low-cost podcast environment you're listening to right now, to this higher return format.
0: Before I go all in, what's the first show about? A A guy like me, with a family like
3: them. He could succeed. He could fail. I promise you, people are going to love to watch him try.
1: I'm in. Yes! This is the best day of my life!
3: All right. Next question.
1: Hi, Alex. This is Clifton Corbin calling from Toronto, Ontario. You've been radically transparent by doing the Startup Podcast and and basically outlining how you make money and what you do to make money. But I also know as you get bigger that transparency would become harder. My question is, how much transparency do you think you can continue to have given the scope and the size of Gimlet as it continues to grow? And do you think transparency has anything to do with your, your success?
3: So there's two questions here. First, did transparency help us? Absolutely. I don't think the first season of Startup would have connected nearly as well with people if we hadn't been as honest about what we were going through. And without that success of that first season, I don't think Gimlet would be where it is today. But then there's that second question. Can we be as transparent now that we're bigger? And here it gets a little tricky. I mean, we can still be very transparent about a lot of things. I did an episode last season where I played a lot of tape from this session between me and our executive coach, Jerry Colonna. And that was one of the rawest and most transparent things I've ever put out in the world. But when it comes to covering the company as a whole, it's different. We can't just roll around with microphones as much anymore. In the beginning, when it was just 10 or 15 of us, we all felt like part of this small band. Now, there's associate producers who've never met me. If I come up with a microphone and ask them to talk about something for startup, what are they gonna say? They don't wanna say anything bad, but also maybe they get the sense that we want them to say something bad because it'll be better drama. But then if they do, maybe they'll get in trouble with their direct supervisor or with their colleagues. The bigger we get, the more reporting on ourselves puts people in complicated, uncomfortable positions. And no one has felt this more acutely, perhaps, than the regular host of Startup, whose chair I am now occupying, Lisa Chow, who was often the one going up to regular Gimlet staff with a microphone and asking them to be on Startup. It was awkward for her to be reporting on her colleagues.
2: I mean, there were definitely people who didn't want to talk.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So that was weird—like people in your own company not wanting to talk to you about the thing. I don't want this on the record. Yeah, yeah, it's like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like talking on background to your uh-huh. colleagues, right, was very weird. Yeah, uh, I mean, what,
3: tell me more about that. Like, who wanted what? What like what was the thing that somebody that you wanted to talk to somebody about? And that, it's that not on the
2: record. I no, can't no, talk about. No, I'm not saying it. like
3: who was it or what. You, but like, oh, okay. what was the what was the the context?
2: Oh, the context. The context was when shows were getting canceled.
3: Oh, I see. Yeah, right.
2: So when shows were getting canceled, um, and we talked about doing an episode on whatever show it was you know and mm-hmm. talking to the people who were on those shows yeah then right yeah that was normally the context
3: it's weird reporting on your colleagues
2: yeah it's really uncomfortable
3: well there's this also the other issue there's one other issue which is sort of like the kind of things that happens in all companies that like it's just like it is like just confidential employee stuff you know right right you know that the decisions that we did make like we we did we did cancel some shows and like the idea of, like, bringing tape recorders into that room as I'm sitting down and having those conversations, it just felt like that seems crazy. Right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that, cruel. Yeah, that would be very, I think,
3: very cruel. Hey, I'm going to break this news to you, by the way. <laughs> I'm recording. <laughs> I'm recording. For startup. She just can't do that. That just feels, like, it, you know, insane. Like, they didn't – they mm-hmm. should signed up to work at Gimlet. They didn't sign up to work on a reality show. Right. So this is an ongoing conversation we're having at Gimlet. How can we be as transparent as possible while still being fair to the people who work here? One way? Do more episodes like this, where we can talk about ourselves without having to put our employees in awkward situations. Coming up after the break, more of your questions answered. We'll talk about diversity here at Gimlet, a band from the 1990s, and what it's like to live the future I never could have imagined. That's all after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Startup. This is our AMA episode. On to the next call.
2: Hi, my name is Ellie. I'm calling from Bellingham, Washington. Um, I really loved the Startup segment that talked about the challenges of hiring a more diverse workforce and did the diversity report on Gimlet um, and what that looks like for you guys. And I would really love if you revisited that topic um, and things you've worked on since then and what's worked and what hasn't.
1: All All right. Ellie from Bellingham, Washington. <laughs> uh, what better
3: person to bring in for a follow-up <laughs> discussion on that <laughs> uh, than the person who was in the first episode of, of this, the Diversity Report episode that, mm-hmm. that we did a long time ago? Mm-hmm. Brittany Luce. I'm here. You're here. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. Um, she's basically asking for an update, essentially, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. When we had this conversation the first time, the thing that struck me was that we had 27 employees at the time. Right. And only three of them were non-white. Right. And I was the only black person here. Yes. I, which I knew at the time. But now, I mean, gosh. I think that we have eight black people at Gimlet now. Uh-huh. And six of them, I believe, are full-time employees.
3: Yeah. And that's different from when we did the first episode on diversity. And back then, not only was the majority of our staff white, the vast majority of our shows were hosted by white people, mostly white men. Today, things are a little different. We have a number of podcasts hosted by women and people of color, including Brittany's newest project, a podcast about black culture called The Nod, which she and her co-host Eric Eddings are launching in just a couple of weeks. And as Brittany has pointed out, she is no longer the only black person on staff. We've hired quite a few more people of color over the last couple of years, but we've also hired quite a few more white people as well. Back in the studio with Brittany, my producer Simone Polanen pulled up the overall percentages to share with us.
1: So, like you mentioned, last time there was a diversity update. There were 27 people at the company and three were not white, which is roughly 11% of the company. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any guesses as to what the percentage is now? Ooh, okay. Let me think. So... Uh okay, so full time. How many employees do we have? Just can you tell me that seventy. Number? We have seventy full time employees. Okay, if I had to guess, I would say that we are um twenty percent non-white. So we're at eighteen point five ish percent. Okay, non-white, which, which, um, comes to thirteen. People. There's only 13 non-white people here working full time. Yeah. I mean, you know what it is, is I think because I was there in the days when there were 27 people and I was the only black person, like any, like adding three to me, I'm like, oh, this is basically an episode of Master of None. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like um, Wow. That's actually fewer than I thought.
3: Actually, since Brittany and I recorded this conversation, that number has changed a little bit. Our full-time staff now includes 18 non-white people and 55 white people. So things have gotten a little bit better. What have we done? Well, first of all, we hired a human resources director, Katie Christensen. We call her a director of people operations. And one of her main responsibilities was to ensure that diversity is a big consideration in how Gimlet hires and operates. She makes sure that people from the company attend recruiting events at places like Howard University or the National Association of Black Journalists or the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. We've created what we call a mixed group. It's a team of 20 or so Gimlet employees who meet every couple of weeks to strategize about recruitment and also how to retain diverse talent once we hire people. We want people to feel comfortable at the company and like their voices are heard. She's also helping us expand the conversation about diversity beyond race. If you remember the original diversity report, a lot of what we talked about was other kinds of diversity, sexual orientation or religious affiliation. And that kind of diversity can be harder to measure because unlike with race and ethnicity, it's not numbers that we collect when we're hiring. People don't check a box about how much they go to church or whether they're straight or gay. So we're sending out a voluntary anonymous survey to all our employees to see what other measures of diversity we should be focusing on and who we should be actively recruiting. But definitely a big area of focus for us is racial and ethnic diversity. And on that front, even though we've made some progress, Gimlet still has a lot of work to do. The company now is three-quarters white. It's actually in line with the national population. But when you look at young people in the United States, the company is much further off. For people between the ages of 18 and 34, only 56% of them are white. That group is the future, and that's where we need to be headed as well. Another sign of how far we still have to go in our diversity efforts. If you look at the non-white employees at Gimlet, most of them are in junior-level positions. The higher up in management you go, the less diverse we get. So
1: I'm about to host this show, Call co-host the show with my mm-hmm. friend and colleague Eric Eddings. Right. It's a show about black culture and right now um, my editor is Annie Rose who is a white woman mm-hmm. and I have like, a, like an editor emeritus in Jorge Just who is a Puerto Rican man. Mm-hmm. And I admire them and I adore them and I think they're both fantastic. I love working with both of them so much. But... There's still something that we've I think we've all discussed internally, which is that, like at the end of the day, the show still needs to have some sort of black editorial presence, right. ideally, a black editor right and like
3: we still don't have one. We've been trying to hire a black editor for a while, and I've been thinking a lot about why we haven't succeeded, what's taking so long, and I think part of it goes back to me in in a certain way. so let me explain editor. Is a key hire at Gimlet. It's a very specialized skill set. An editor can make the difference between a show succeeding or failing. And for a position like that, as core as that, you want to hire someone that you know or someone who's been vetted by people you trust. And so you tap your network. But my network, like the data says about a lot of white people, is pretty overwhelmingly white. I had this realization recently about just how white my network was when I was looking at all the photographs on my walls in my house. There's this one picture in particular that stood out to me that I told Brittany about. There was this like picture of like from when I lived in Chicago, Chicago, and it's <laughs> like uh and it's like, you know, like there's this whole group of friends of us, and we were all we had this like weekly basketball game. Uh-huh. It was like a very friendly co-ed basketball game, uh-huh. all my friends, and there's a big picture, like it was like really fun, and like on the fifth year of us doing it, we had it's a big fun, portrait, fun yeah, it was years, really fun. Yeah. it was like it's like thirty people, all white. All of them. All right. yeah.
1: That's, see, that's, like, interesting to me because, like, I was at dinner with my friends a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's, like, laughing and drinking having a good time. It was, like, I mean, there were a whole bunch of us. I'd probably say there were maybe, I don't know, 15 of us. And somebody said something that caused everybody else to kind of, like, bust out in laughter. Like, I kind of, like, paused for a second and, like, looked around the table. You know, like, every once in a while when you're having a good time, you kind of, like, look around the table and you're like, oh, man, this feels so good. Yeah. And I just kind of, like, looked around and I was like, well, shit. You know, like, we had people, different ethnicities, people different colors, different religions. We had, you know, white folks, black folks, Latino, Asian, like... Mm-hmm. Like, a college recruiter would kill for this moment. Mm-hmm. Like, they wish that they could sit at the table and, like, take a photo of this. Look at this. Like, like that's their dream. That's their dream. <laughs> right. but, like, I mean, you know, I paused for a second to kind of, like, take that in. It yeah. doesn't happen all the time. right? But But, like, on that
3: night, I was just like, oh... And it's interesting that, so that's like a mental snapshot that you have. And if you were to p- compare that mental snapshot to the actual snapshot that's on my wall, <laughs> there'd be a pretty striking difference, right? I, I, I think maybe so. Yeah. Brittany is firmly part of the coming America. The America where talented professionals from all kinds of backgrounds are accessible through her social network. Clearly, I'm not. So a big part of diversifying Gimlet at the leadership level is diversifying my own network. And I've been working on it, been reaching out to people I admire who are doing interesting work. I've been meeting up for coffee, having lunch, forging relationships. And that's led to projects like Mogul, this hip-hop miniseries we did with a podcast host named Reggie Osei, who hosts a show called The Combat Jack Show and runs a company called The Loudspeakers Network. When it comes to Britney and Eric's new show, The Nod, we still don't have a Black editor on staff, but we've recruited a small group of Black editors in other media to take on an advisory editorial role on the show. I know that's only a short-term solution, and we have to find a more permanent one. In going through this process, something that I continually remind myself of is that there's a tendency, especially, I think, on the part of white people, to think about diversity as the responsibility of the non-white people on staff. And of course that's not true. To actually make the kind of progress we want, everybody has to be working on this. Everybody at Gimlet. And Brittany and I talked about that.
1: You know, it can't just be 5% of the organization who's like, we have to do something about this. It has to feel like it's something that everybody has to do.
3: That's a thing, right? Yeah, Yeah.
1: and I think that there's, like, a fear in making something, like, obligatory. Mm -hmm. But, and I guess I could see, like, like when you call something obligatory, then it's just like...
3: Yeah, that scares me because I feel like the, the easiest way to make somebody not want something is to tell them they...
1: You have to, have to,
3: do, to it. do it. But I feel like there is lots of space between sort of the status quo as it is right now and sort of like this is a mandatory everybody has to take, yeah. take somebody of a different race to yeah, lunch once just a month. Yeah, like <laughs> right? the, uh, definitely not what right? we want to be doing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah, I think
1: that like the way things are now is like it's it's a little better but I still think that we have a ways to go as far as like making it like an utmost priority. Okay.
3: We've now arrived at the last question of this episode.
2: Hi, Alex. Uh, my
0: name's Yossi. I'm calling from Tel Aviv. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast ever since you started. Uh, my question is this. How does the reality of Gimlet now, with all the different podcasts and things that you guys are doing, like, differ from the expectations that you had when you first started, when you first conceived of this idea? And how do you look back on those expectations that you had at the beginning?
3: It's a good question, Yossi. It's a question I've asked people many times, although it's harder to answer than it is to ask. In some ways, things have gone pretty much like we expected they would. Set out to launch a few shows and get them to audiences and hundreds of thousands of listeners. And we've done that. But what's strange is how completely surprising it still feels almost every day. I remember this moment in the very, very beginning before the company existed, before I met Matt. I was pitching this investor. And the investor said, you know, like, just imagine three years from now you have a sales team and a marketing team. And I remember thinking like, I cannot imagine that. I literally can't imagine it. It it never crossed my mind that there would be sales and marketing, and it was one of these things that obviously, if the company goes the way I'm saying it's gonna go, there will be, but it just was something that I hadn't even thought about. And today, we have a sales team and a marketing team. We sit on the same floor, they're 15 feet away from me in the office behind me. And I guess that's one of the most unexpected things about this whole thing, is that it's basically gone the way I said, I said we were gonna launch a bunch of shows generate audiences in hundreds of thousands, and we've done that. But even though it's gone more or less the way I said, it feels like almost every day there's something happening that I could not possibly have imagined, or I'm feeling a feeling that I could not have possibly predicted. Sometimes it's anxiety, sometimes it's fear, and sometimes it's just pure, blissful weirdness. For example, this experience I had a few weeks ago, I was going to something called the ABC Upfronts. Upfronts are these things where big TV networks present their fall slate of shows to a room full of press and advertisers and other assembled fancy people. And I was there because ABC was going to be presenting, among all their other shows, Alex Inc., the show about me and the first season of Startup. And so these Upfronts, they take place in this really ritzy room. They have network stars coming out and giving speeches. They had the entire cast of Scandal up there taking bows. There were people performing songs all the way through. It's this big, huge production. And then it ended in this really bizarre way. Which, when I got home that night, I told my wife Nozne all about. So four hours ago,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I was at my first ever network TV upfront, and then this woman, who's the head of programming for ABC, comes out and just sort of like walks walks us through the whole the whole slate. They talk about like how scandal and. Grey's Anatomy and How to Get Away with Murder are doing great. And then they talked about their new, this other new contest show that they're starting called Boy Band, which is a contest show about creating the next boy band. And then they were like, in celebration of that, we have like one film performance for you. Guess who the last act was.
1: Guess. (laughs) I can't guess because you already told me. (laughs) Well, you sent me a picture. It was the Backstreet Boys
3: the backstreet boys
1: mm-hmm. i think they're pro- like are they like they're like in their f- mid 40s
3: oh no they look like they were like they look like cops like a, like who were like two internet. two years away from retirement <laughs> they looked they looked like old men it looked like <laughs> they looked like the rolling stones <laughs> it was wild wild How old the Backstreet Boys look now is just one of a long list of things I could never have imagined in the very beginning. But if I'm honest, that weirdness, that is what makes me the most excited. It is legitimately thrilling to live every day in a future that you couldn't have imagined. Next time on Startup, the story behind one of the most expensive cups of coffee. They said it was a a fruit bomb of flavors, a bouquet of flowers. It had a sweet lingering taste to it. Papaya, mango steam. That's next week. Startup is hosted normally by Lisa Chow, but occasionally by me. Our show is produced by Bruce Wallace, Luke Malone, Simone Polanen, Emmanuel Berry, and Amy Standen. Our senior producer is Molly Messick. We are edited by Caitlin Kenny and Pat Walters. Production assistance and fact-checking by Alan Melleth. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song, Build Buildings, wrote and performed our special ad music. Additional music by the band, I finally get to say the name again, hotmoms.gov. For full music credits, visit our website, gimletmedia.com startup. David Herman makes this episode. To subscribe to Startup, go to Apple Podcasts or whichever app you like to use. You can follow us on Twitter, at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.